0: Good evening. Did y'all have a great day today? All right. Good. So I want to open up. I was going to tell you, tell you guys a story I was thinking about today. And uh, we're g- I'm going to be speaking out of Jeremiah tonight. You know, the passage is about broken cisterns and in, in water. And so in, in 2000, and this is probably 2008, uh, an, an Army team came to visit uh, the forward location that I was at, and they showed up, and these guys had come up from Kuwait. So they were coming to kind of backfill a team, but they hadn't had all the training they needed uh, to be functional in the country at the time, so they were looking for somebody to be a gunner in their truck, so somebody to ride up on the big 240 machine gun to come along with them. And so they needed somebody to come come along, and I said, yeah, I'm a, I'm a gunner. I'd be glad to ride with you guys. They said, okay, well, cool. We're leaving at about five Four or five in the morning, we're going to go out. It's going to be a short trip. Uh, We'll go out. We'll head uh, out into the Tangy Valley. Uh, We're going to go meet one of the head leaders out there. Uh, We'll put eyes on him. We'll turn around. We'll come back. It'll be a quick trip. So I said, yeah, no problem. That's too easy. So I got that morning, had a cup of coffee, and we headed out. So the place we were going was a little place called Baraki Barak. And from where we were leaving, it was probably maybe an hour, 90-minute drive, something like that. Well, about forty five minutes into it, like my guts are like starting to turn. Like I that cup of coffee did not sit good. And I was like, man, like I am starting to hurt. So I'm sitting up in this gun turret, and I'm just grinding through it and I'm like, you know what? We're gonna get there, we'll turn around like an hour this will all be over with. It'll be good. So we stop. And about 10 minutes goes by, and nobody's moved. And that's always a bad sign when you're going somewhere and you just stop and people are talking on the radio and you have no idea what they're talking about. Usually someone's coming up with a new plan, which is supposed to be better, and it never is. So they came up with this plan, right? So they called back and they said, okay, well, here's what we want you guys to do since you got to Baraki Barak and that was further than we thought you were going to make it. Why don't you just keep pushing in a little further in the valley, and we're going to do a patrol to contact, which is a nice way of saying drive until somebody shoots at you. And then when they do, then we'll let you come back. So it's a horrible idea. But, like, at this point, now I'm thinking, there's no telling when this day's going to end. And I am hurting bad. And these guys that are down in this truck, they don't know me. Like, we don't have a relationship. We high five the night before. I said I would be their gunner. And we don't have a relationship at all. So I'm getting down. <laughs> I drop down in the, you know, the gun turret. And these guys are in the truck. And I said, hey, I said I, I need to go to the bathroom. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we can we can open we can open the back doors. Like, no, like I'm not getting out there to go to the bathroom. Like, I gotta go. And they're like, What do you like, what do you guys do? Well, I found an MRE box that was in there, right? <laughs> like, Don't look at me like you haven't done it. I know you did it. There's enough there's enough guys in here who have served that know what I'm talking about right now. So I found this MRE box and I dumped out all the MREs and found a trash bag and I lined the MRE box with a trash bag and I just let her have it. And it was not good. I mean, it was bad. Like, I don't even think these guys smoked cigarettes, but they were smoking cigarettes. Like, they were trying to get that smell out of there. They are getting after it. So, man, I am, and I'm trying to be as nice as I can. Like, I tie this bag up, and I close up the box, and I get duct tape, and I duct tape the box, and I stick it in the far back corner of the truck. Like, I'm apologizing to these guys. Like, man, like, I, I'm sorry, but there was no stopping that. Like, it was coming one way or another. So, so we go up, and we ended up we ended up finding an IED just a little ways up around the bend, And they're like, okay, good, good enough. We kind of know where our limit's at. You guys come on back. So we're trying to turn around all these giant, you know, these trucks are almost 20 feet long. Some of them, we're trying to turn these things around on basically a a, a one-lane mountain road, and it is a nightmare. But we eventually get them all turned around, and we start heading back. And as we start coming down off the side of this mountain, I'm looking out over the valley, over the top of that machine gun, and I hear woof, and the whole truck picks up. Just the back end, and I kind of drop in the truck, and I was like, man, we just got blown up. So I'm trying to get back up on the gun, and then I hear this gurgling sound. It's like somebody's just like, like they're choking, right? And I'm like, so I'm going, wow, like, I didn't think we got hit that hard, but he is hurting down there. Like, somebody is suffering. Like, this guy is dying, right? So we get the truck stopped, and I'm up on the machine gun, and I'm looking for targets. And I was like, hey, do we have any contact? They're like, no, we're looking... So I was like, I'm going to check on this guy while I got him in it. And I dropped down, and it looked like a crime scene in there. Like, it was bad. Like, this box has been, the, the truck is intact. The box, however, I don't know what happened, but it came apart, right? So I don't know if you guys have ever used spray foam or spackling, but that's kind of what it looks like on the inside of the truck. Like, it is all over the place. It's on the inside of the truck. This guy's got it on his kit and on his clothes. And he's looking at me like, what have you done? Right? So uh, I feel bad for him, man. And and they're gagging. And I'm I'm trying not to laugh, but I'm getting through it. So we get up there. And uh, so eventually we get everything put together. Like we get vehicles recovered. You know, tires that got popped get repaired. And we're getting ready to roll out. <laughs> and I feel this tap on my leg, and I look down, and the guy said, "Can I please be the gunner?" And I was like, "You're not qualified." So, <laughs> 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 I, actually, I felt so bad for him on the way back. Finally, I just dropped out, and I was like, "Man, I'll let you. I'll let you have it. You can go up there." And he got up in the gun turret for about ten minutes, and I couldn't stand it anymore. I was like, "You got to get back down. Like we're done. I got to have my spot back." So. That was funny for about 10 minutes, and they're like, okay, go clean up the cr- truck. And uh, I spent the rest of the day cleaning that truck out. So there's absolutely no way I can tie that into the message, but it's a good story. So I thought you guys would like it. If you guys are turning your Bible with me to uh, Jeremiah 2. So, g- give you some historical context here. Like, two things that I really got convicted of while I was preparing for this message was that, one, it's out of the Old Testament, right? So sometimes I feel like I have a hard time relating and saying, okay, well, I can make this Old Testament passage relevant to today. When I started digging into this scripture, I'm like, there's nothing more relevant. Like, there is nothing more relevant than what's happening here in Jeremiah than the, than the nation that we lived in today. The other thing is, I think a lot of times, uh, which was especially convicting to me, is that we look in the New Testament and we see the salvation of Jesus Christ and his love and his mercy. And then we look in the Old Testament and we see this picture of like this God of wrath and who's like ready to drop his hammer on us. And he's always constantly dis- disciplining his people and bringing them in. And, and what I really settled into is like, hey, listen, like he's the same God yesterday, today and tomorrow. Amen. Like there is no change from him from then to now. So what I have to do is I have to change my own preconceptions about what I believe about this scripture and start looking at it this way. And I tell you, whenever I started reading this book, not from a wrathful God, but going through Jeremiah from a Lord who is like in love with his people. And he's lamenting over their idolatry and like he's broken hearted for them. Like this completely changed the way I started reading through the Old Testament. So going into Jeremiah 2, it says, The word of the Lord came to me saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in the land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest, and all who ate, ate of it incurred guilt, and disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me, and went after worthlessness, and became worthless? They did not say, where's the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in the land of deserts and pits, and in the land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things, but when you came in, you defiled my land, and you made my heritage an abomination. The priests didn't say, where's the Lord? Those who handle the law didn't know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that did not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord. And with your children's children, I will contend from, my, from across the coast of Cyprus and sea, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for the, that which does not profit. Be appalled, O oh heavens, at this. Be shocked and utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. Lord, I pray that uh, tonight that you just really uh, speak your word through me, Lord, uh, that you, uh, your spirit will be uh, in this place, that we will handle your scripture rightly. You will soften the hearts of these men and uh, speak into their lives, their situations, and that the spirit will just continue to move the way it has this weekend. Uh, we're so thankful that uh, you see us... Uh, as a loving object of your affection, and you're willing to be here with us in this place. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's look at verse 1 through he- 3 right here, right? So he comes in, right? The political climate at the time now, the best way I, can, I could really describe this is, if you guys remember kind of in 2003, where we go, in, we go into Iraq, we kick out Hussein, Everything's looking good for a little bit. And then here comes Al Qaeda and ISIS and all these other factions. Right. They're all starting. The whole region is starting to kind of implode because we've removed this figure of stability in that region. Right. We pulled this dictator out that kind of kept everybody at bait because they're like, hey, he's kind of the the big dog in here. So we're going to leave this alone. Well, we removed the big dog, and it kind of destabilized the region. The same thing is happening in Jeremiah's time right here. The great Assyrian king has just died, and now Babylon is starting to rise up, and Egypt is starting to rise up, and they're looking to start conquer lands. So what's happened in the religious side here is that the Jewish people, they're about 800 years removed from the Exodus. So 800 years prior, they've been brought out of Egypt. Now they're living in the Lord that the land gave them, but because of the influence of these Babylonians and these Egyptians, uh, pagan gods. You're starting to see that influence come into the law. So these people, basically, if, if we narrow it down, these Jews are Jews during the day and they're doing pagan rituals at night, right? So these these guys are going into the valleys at night and they're dealing in uh, they're dealing in these uh, pagan sexual practices, like these these giant orgies, and they're also uh, participating in child sacrifice, where they're going out and they're killing killing children for sacrifice for prosperity. And you look at this and you go, well, like, that's, that's pretty far out there. Like, we're not getting into these pagan sexual rituals and we're not getting into child sacrifice. And I say, you're absolutely wrong. Like, look at our nation today. Did Brody not talk about the porn statistics last night, which grossed more than any all or all major sports combined? Like, tell me that is not a pagan ritual where you're worshiping the flesh and the creation more than the creator. Right? We're saying, okay, well, we're not, we're not taking children out there and we're not murdering them in the valley. No, let's look at this. Since 1973, the U.S. alone has had over 60 million abortions. 60 million. And that's just documented. Another statistic was that for every 1,000 live births, 234 abortions occur. That's a quarter. So tell, tell me that our nation isn't sacrificing its children for our own prosperity that they believe this lie, that it's okay, it's their body, they're in control of that, and that child's life is worth their convenience, right? So don't look in the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament and say it's not relevant today. It is completely relevant. So we're getting in verse 1 through 3, and he says, For the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in the land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them to close the Lord. Notice the analogy he's using here, right? The devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. Like God's putting himself in the husband role, and he's like, you were like a bride to me. Like I carried you out of the wilderness, and you followed me willingly, and anyone who came against you, I utterly destroyed them. Like I am a good husband, and you were my people. And then he goes in, he says, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. This says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me, and went after worthlessness, and became worthlessness? They didn't say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in the land of deserts and pits, in the land of droughts and deep darkness, in the land that none passes through, where no man dwells. And I brought you into plentiful land to enjoy its fruit and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest didn't say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law don't know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. God is demanding. Like, he's the loving husband, right? And he's demanding. He wants to know. He's like, what fault did you find in me? What did I do wrong? Like, I have loved you. I brought you out of exile. I gave you a land of full of milk and honey and it's fruitful and it bears. And you're walking away from me. What did I do? You notice the people he's rebuking this passage, right? The priests, the law handlers, the shepherds, the prophets, right? He's rebuking the leaders in the nation. He said, your priest didn't ask, where is the Lord? He's saying, your priests aren't seeking me. Your priests don't seek my will. They're not looking after me. The people who know the law, those who handle the law did not know me. These are the Levites. These are the people who handle scripture daily. Like their charge is to teach scripture. And he says, they don't know me. And that should resonate. Because what he's saying, he's like, it is entirely possible to know the word of God without knowing the God of the word. You can absolutely have a knowledge of God and have no one-on-one relationship. Absolutely no first-hand experience with Him. Knowledge of Scripture does not necessarily mean that you have a relationship with Christ. Next, it says that you went into worthlessness and you became worthless. You went after worthlessness and you became worthlessness. The things that you desire, whatever your heart desires, ultimately that's what you become. And he's saying you desired worthlessness and you became worthless. If my heart is for Christ and my desire is Christ, then I'm going to be sanctified and I'm going to become more like Christ. If my heart isn't for Christ and it's for pagan things and the things of this world, I'm going to become more like that which my heart desires. In the use, and, uh, use of the, the scripture and the word. I had a, uh, a man who invested in me uh, back in Houston. His name was uh, AK. And AK said something that's always, always stood on me. And he talked about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And he said, if the word himself used scripture to fight temptation, how much more should we? Like if the living word, the word himself used scripture to fight the temptations of the devil, how much more should we? Like, we, that relationship is necessary. We have to know the God of the word. When he said you went after things that, went didn't, that did not profit, in that context, in the Hebrew, that went after, went after meant to be enslaved to. Like a vassal, like an indentured servant. You became a slave to those things that did not profit. So rolling into verse 9, he said, Therefore I contend with you, declares the Lord. Contends means he's taken them before the court. Like, contend is to say, hey, like, I'm the plaintiff here. Like, I'm taking you to court. I want to know what fault you found in me. He said, Therefore, I will contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your, child, your children's children, I will contend. For cross the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Kadar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they're not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. He's saying, look at the Egyptians. Look at the Syrians. Have they changed their gods? Their gods aren't even gods. They have idols. He's like, why is it that the only nation that wants to change their God is the only nation that has the one true God? You have the one true God, the God of the Word, and you want to change Him. For what? Like, what is so worth it? So He says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can't hold water. He's saying you've, got, you've committed two sins here. Not only have you forsaken me and chosen sin, but you've chosen your son, sin above me. You've chosen your sin over me. And how often we do, do we do that in our lives? Like, that's convicting to me alone. How often do I know the right path? Do I know what the Lord has called me to? And I choose my pride over something, right? I choose addiction over Christ. We constantly, in our, in our flesh, have to battle choosing the creation over the creator. Where I look back in my life where I had this period where I go, okay, I have two things, right? I, I have this option where I can exchange my glory I've got the glory and the salvation of Christ. And I have this bag of pills. And what do I want right now? You know what? I'll exchange my glory for that today. And the Lord is saying, do you realize how crazy that is? Like, do you know how out of your mind you, you are? So he says, be appalled, O heavens. Like, I have this picture of him calling the angels around. He goes, look at these people. Look at them. Look what they're doing. They're exchanging my glory for that. These pagan idols. These golden caps, these things that mean nothing, objects they created with their own hands, they want to invest their glory into that. He's like, be appalled. I want to use a, who, who's got a wallet in here right now? Who's got a wallet? You got a wallet. Okay. So I was thinking about this today, right? And this has been an awesome group. It's been a, it's been a record-breaking group, actually. Like, we've had more men here than we've ever had before. So what I did is I have something in my wallet that's very valuable, and I think you deserve it, okay? Are you willing to trade whatever's in your wallet for this? Sure? Okay, what do you got? You got money? You got, you got cash? How much cash you got? 20, 40, 50, 53 bucks. All right. I've got nothing. All right. So. I've got 53 bucks now. That's right. I can't give him his money back. It would ruin the illustration. All right. That's right. But is that not what we do? We get this temptation, right? We get this person coming in saying, the devil comes like the enemy comes to tempt us and he goes, you deserve this. Like, I have something better for you. Like, what do you have? What do you got there? I'm telling you, this is better. You'll like this a lot more. What do you got? And then we hand it all over, and we end up nothing. Broken cisterns. So he gives this beautiful illustration, right? He comes in. He says, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me in the fountain of living water and hewed out for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. Like, you have to understand in this time, right? Like, get this picture of the wilderness, this dry, desolate area, and you have this spring of living water that's constantly flowing. Like, I remember growing up in Alabama, in this small town that we lived in, that there was just a little few miles out of town, there was a spring that constantly ran. And it was the coldest, freshest water. And after church, we would constantly want to go out there to go get this water because it tasted so good. Like it's just constantly flowing out of the earth. We passed through there as we moved up to Snowbird from Houston. We passed through there uh, about a month ago. That spring, still flowing, constantly turning over. Water's constantly pointing out of it. Man, this is the freshest water ever. Have you guys ever swam in a pond before? Like go swimming in a pond? Yeah? Like, when you get out of swimming in a pond, like, do you smell good? Like, do you smell clean? Do you feel clean? Like, do you feel like you need to go cleanse after you do that? It's the same principle as a cistern. The Lord's saying, like, you're in a desolate area. I'm the spring of living water that's constantly flowing, and I'm going to fulfill your life. And you go, you know what? Like, I'm just going to try to do it on my own. I'm going to go dig my own cistern. I got this. And if you understand the geology of this area, right, this is like hard limestone. It would take months to break through this limestone to dig a well, and then they would try to plaster the inside of the walls to seal it up, and it rarely would it stay sealed. It would crack, and it would leak, and all the water would run off. Like, if you think about it, this was, like, made for irrigation and cattle. This wasn't ever made for human consumption. Like, that water is stagnant water. Like, it is poison. When I told you guys that I got sick back in uh, 2013 in Afghanistan, it was from the water, Right? The water there, it's collecting rainwater in these wells, and parasites growing it, and it's nasty. And if you consume it, it destroys the whole body, right? This is not fresh water. So he's saying, rather than drinking from my living spring, like this flow of water that I'm constantly pouring into you, you pass me up in your desolation, and you go, you know what, like I'm going to go dig my own thing. I'm going to go do it. And what he's doing is he's rebuking the Jewish people in this time because they are more concerned. They're less concerned with salvation by faith and more concerned with salvation by works and actions and deeds and trying to do it by themselves. They like their pagan idols because it's all about them. Oftentimes we do things in our lives that look good on the outside, but really all we're seeking is self gratification. I'm not doing good things because the Lord has called me to do good things. I'm good, doing good things because I want the kingdom of me to be recognized. And I want people to give me accolades and say, good job. Like, I'm proud of you. We go in it with these broken hearts that are self-satisfying and not for the glory of God. And what he's saying, he's like, you're forsaking me for what? For these idols. For this water. And there's not only is this water bad, it's stale and it's stagnant. But you're going to put it in these broken cisterns and you're going to find yourself empty just like that. And I'm the spring of living water. If you will turn to uh, John 4.10 for me. So Jesus here is talking to the woman in Samaria, the woman at the well, and he says, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be Thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. A spring of water welling up to eternal life. He said, whoever drinks this water is going to be thirsty again. But if you drink of me, you'll thirst no more. Whatever you're filling your life with now, whether it's addiction, pornography, you know, alcohol, whatever it is... Whatever you're filling it up with, you're going to get thrust, thirsty again. You're going to need more to try to fill it up. It's never going to satisfy it. The only thing that's going to relieve you of that constant, dire thirst is the living water and the salvation of Jesus Christ. So, going back to Jeremiah. In verse fourteen, he says, "Is Israel slave? Is he a homeborn servant? Why then has he become prey? The lions have roared against him; they roared loudly. They made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins, without inhabitants. Moreover, the men of Memphis and Tephanus they have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when He led you in the way? And now, what do you gain going to Egypt and drink the water of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Syria to drink the water of the Euphrates?" Your evil will chastise you, and your apostasy will, will reprove you. No one see that, it, see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. God's saying, "What benefit is it for you to seek these pagan gods? But then in the end, he, he goes and he says, "Listen, He says, "The fear of me is not in you." If the beginning of wisdom is the fear in the Lord, the Lord is calling him foolish right now. He's like, you don't have a healthy respect and fear for me, and you are fools. He's calling him out, like he's already said, like he's contending against him, like he is a the plaintiff in court. He's taking, he's like, I want to know what you found in me, where you think this is so much better than the salvation that I have to offer you. One of the notes I wrote down here is I said, Isn't it telling of the human heart that in the writing of Jeremiah, 800 years after being delivered from the bondage of Egypt, and today, 2,000 years after being delivered from the bondage of sin and death, men still choose to dig broken cisterns. This generation is 800 years removed from the bondage of slavery, and they're already going back to to the old ways. They're already seeking something else. They're starting to believe the lie that there's something better on the other side. And two thousand years after Christ comes to the cross and bears the burden of our guilt and shame and atones for all of it and justifies us, we still somehow think there's something better. And the Lord says, heavens, like be distraught. Be like utterly broken over this. If you will turn to James one, James 1.13. James one thirteen, he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Listen guys, affairs, affairs don't start on Facebook, right? Pornography doesn't start when you log onto the computer. Those things start in the heart and they manifest themselves in the world around you. Whenever you exchange your desires for for the will of Christ, for your own desires, that's where those troubles start. There is a difference between a trial and a temptation, right? A trial is something that's coming at you, something you're walking into, that's going to test your resolve and your character. Temptation is something that's welling up in the desires of your flesh and is being manifested on the outside. What you're being tempted by, whatever that temptation is, this is not an external temptation. It's an internal temptation. Whatever you desire on the outside is just a reflection of what's happening in your heart. Don't check the temptation. Check your heart. Like, what do you desire and why do you desire that? What do you see in it that you'd be willing to exchange your glory for? To turn away from the gospel is to turn away from the person of Christ. It's that simple. So just, just think about this, right? People come in and they say, you know what? Like, just go share your testimony. Just go preach. Like, if, if, if it changes one person's life, it's totally worth it. If you humble yourself and you share your testimony and it changes one person's life, it's totally worth it. And Brody said it best, though. And Brody said, it's not about that. It's not about results. It's about obedience. It doesn't matter if I come here and I pour my heart out and no one's converted. It's not about results. It's about obedience. Look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah probably started his ministry around his 20. He ministers for 40 years to a people who never turns to God. They're enslaved. They get pushed into exile, and he dies in exile exile without ever seeing a convert. How convicted would you be to proclaim the gospel for 40 years and never see a conversion and die knowing that you had been obedient to God and the results didn't matter? And what is it in your life today? Where the Lord's calling you to obedience? You're saying, yeah, but I get results over here. Like, I know what you want me to, but, like, I've got a good job. I know what you want me to do, but, like, this is fulfilling to me. Like, this is gratifying. These are the things I want to pursue. So it comes to a point in Jeremiah where the Lord's warned him and he's told his people to repent, and they haven't. So he tells Jeremiah that judgment's coming. But like the Lord always does, he comes in in Jeremiah 31, thirty-one I'm going to take time because I want you guys to get here and see this. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one. The Lord says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with my house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. He's pointing to the cross. No man in history has gained righteousness by works. What makes you think you're going to be the first? He highlights our inability to come to him. In this Old Testament God of wrath that we like to portray, we look at what he does. We look in the scripture. When God's people has failed... He never increased his wrath. He always increased his mercy and grace. When his people broke his covenants, he said, okay, I'm going to extend you a new covenant. I'm going to make you a new deal. But he never left that law unfulfilled because he can't deny himself. So he points to the cross and he says, you are completely unable to do this on your own. But there's going to come a day where I'm going to send my son to die on a cross. And his blood is going to atone for your sins, all of them, not some of them. And his blood will cover all your transgressions, and I will remember your iniquity no more. The God that we loved, our God, our creator, has brought us in. And in this time of wrath in Jeremiah, where his people are preparing to be exiled, He says there's there's hope. There's going to be a time when Jesus is going to come and he's going to make all things right. So from the Old Testament to the New, we continue to point out that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. Everything points to the cross. Only with this, this is a quote from Martin Luther. He said, let the law, sin, and the devil cry out against us until the outcry fills heaven and earth. The Spirit of God outcries them all. Our feeble groans, but Father. It's brokenness. We'll be heard of God sooner than the combined record of hell, sin, and the law. That's powerful. In Revelations, it says that our accuser goes, bef- goes before him day and night, constantly accusing us, pointing out our flaws. And Luther's making the illustration that the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, and when we're so broken we can't find the words, that he hears the groans of our heart. And the Lord our God is so merciful and gracious and loving that he will hear those groans before he ever hears hears the accusations of the enemy and the law. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the salvation that you've offered for us, your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for what... Uh, He did on the cross for us. We pray that tonight you'll soften the hearts of these men, uh, that if any of them are here uh, that don't know you, whatever you've laid on their heart, Lord, that you will free them from those those yokes, those burdens, those shackles. Let them know that they were never intended to do it alone. They don't have to do it alone. No man in history has ever done it successfully. And that's why you came and you've rectified us to yourself. You're the God who loves us and is gracious and merciful, and nothing that we've ever done is beyond your reach. God, we thank you for that. Love you. Pray that you continue to work in these men's hearts uh, through tonight going into morning. Give us safety, and Lord, uh, we just want to worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen.